I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Scott and Bill discuss the U.S.-Japan deal on the EV tax credits, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai's House Ways and Means Committee hearing, and Mexico's rollback of power and oil market reforms. All that and more on this week's episode of The Trade Guys. Well, welcome everybody. This is uh, Trade Guy Bill speaking. Andrew's away. It's spring break. He has kids and he's taking a short family vacation. And we've had a mini restructuring within the Shoal Chair. So Trade Guy Emily, whom you all are familiar with from previous podcasts, is still around, but she's going to have her own set of programs to run now. So we're going to be seeing a little bit less of her, hearing a little bit less of her, even though she's still involved in everything the Shoal Chair is doing. And you're going to be reading a lot of her work going forward, and she'll be back. But right now, we have new uh, trade guy, Thibaut, who is joined. Uh, he's already been with us, but is now joining essentially as our new uh, research fellow for the Shoal Chair. And you're going to be hearing more from Thibaut as time goes forward when Andrew can't do it and on the occasions when we decide not to go with Emily. So we're going to turn this over to Thibaut, who's going to take it over and run the show. Thibaut? Thanks, Bill. Hi, trade guys. Andrew, nice to meet you, albeit virtually. As Bill said, my name is Thibaut Nemiel, and I've succeeded Emily on replacing Andrew in the trade guys. So why don't we kick it off today with a recent development in a familiar source of international trade drama, namely the IRA's EVs tax credits. So the US and Japan just signed a deal on critical minerals that are key to those credits. So trade guys, can you run us through what this means for US-Japan trade and, and the RA's implementation? Well, it remains to be seen because there's another shoe that, that has to drop. The issue in the in the IRA relating to eligibility for the tax credit is that you can produce your batteries using minerals from countries with which we have a trade a free trade agreement. And that's all the IRA says, with which we have a free trade agreement. It doesn't define the term. Now for some, like Canada, Mexico, Chile, actually Korea, it's, it's obvious because we have free trade agreements with them. We don't have free trade agreements with the EU and Japan in the, in the traditional sense of the term, but they're major auto producers. And both of them have wanted to get in on the tax credit, which makes perfect sense, and make sure their cars are eligible for it. The minerals part only relates to half of the tax credit or, you know, $3,750. But the statute doesn't provide a lot of wiggle room here for the Treasury Department. But what they are notionally thinking about is deciding that some trade agreements that are not necessarily free trade agreements in the traditional sense might be considered to be trade agreements for purposes of the IRA. And the Japan critical minerals deal potentially falls into that category. It is an agreement. It's about minerals. It contains a lot of language on issues like labor and sustainability. Not nearly enough, according to people on the Hill, but it, it does contain language on those subjects. It doesn't contain market access provisions, and it doesn't contain enforceable binding obligations that would require congressional approval. And USTR has been clear they don't intend to send this agreement to Congress for approval, but it's out there. It's done. 
uh, at least with respect to Japan. The European one is not done, but it probably will be fairly soon. The question now goes to Treasury. Is Treasury going to say that this is an agreement that makes Japan or Japanese companies eligible for the tax credit? And Treasury hasn't said that yet and probably won't right away. Their guidance about all this is supposed to appear tomorrow. Tomorrow will be March 31st. We'll see what they actually say. The signals have been to not expect them necessarily to declare particular agreements as qualifying, but rather that they will lay out criteria for what would qualify and that the decision on whether Japan qualifies or not might come at a later date. That could be wrong. It certainly is true for the Europeans because there is no agreement yet. So there's nothing for Treasury to bless. But with Japan, there is an agreement. So I suppose it's possible that they could say this meets our standards. More likely, they will just say, here are the standards, and they will make a decision about who meets them at a later date. So Japan doesn't win until this second step is is taken, but I think the odds are pretty good that this is the route the Treasury is going to take, although Congress doesn't seem very happy about it. Well, it's that last point that Bill made that I think is worth talking about because this drama is about to enter Act 2. Act 1 was the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and this program of subsidies for electric vehicles. And certainly the, the 20 economies with whom the United States has a free trade agreement qualify. And then it's a question of who else does. Now, let me first say that from a commercial standpoint, I think it's good for the U.S. to have Japan as one of the, one of the economies that qualifies, mostly because Japan is a world leader in materials technology. And they have many, many research programs on on both the, not the materials themselves, but their conversion into, into battery anodes and cathodes and their placement and the fine details and know-how about what it takes to make advanced batteries. So I think they're a great partner in this. And that's purely as a commercial partner and, and point of view that has nothing to do with either the law or the politics. The law and the politics got very interesting. Let me observe that one of the key votes, I think the key votes to, to pass the Inflation Reduction Act was from Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. He is uh, featured, or he has a byline on today's Wall Street Journal editorial page with an op-ed that is titled, Biden's Inflation Reduction Act Betrayal, and goes on to say that the president, instead of implementing the laws intended, unelected ideologues, bureaucrats, and appointees seem determined to violate and subvert the law to advance a partisan agenda that ignores both energy and fiscal security from a Democratic senator. The key sentence down later is, the administration is attempting to, at every turn, to implement the bill it wanted, not the bill Congress actually passed. Now, I understand Senator Manchin's in cycle, so he's facing the voters in 2024, and his state went from the most Democratic in the nation when Bill Clinton was first elected to now the most Republican in the nation in terms of vote share. So, you know, it's a challenge. And so I'm not sure what's going on here, but that's strong language from a Democrat. We've heard similar strong language, which Bill can get into, from the former, both the Democratic rank and ranking member of the House Ways and Means Committee and the Democratic chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, um, Mr. Neal and Senator Wyden, who are just a, a little uncomfortable with what's going on here. But overall, what we've got is, as we reach the second act, is a lot of frustration between the Congress and the administration about, about what's going on. And that's going to resolve itself in some unpredictable ways. So, Bill... What are we missing here? Well, I think you've gotten to the key point there at the end. This is more about executive congressional relations than it is about substance. I, I think the complaints about what's in or not in the agreement are ring a little bit hollow, frankly. 
it really and there and there's really there's two issues here that come up and readers of my column will remember or note that I commented on them this week. One is consultation and one is congressional authority. I can't think of a trade agreement in the last 40 years where Congress felt they were adequately consulted. And there was a comment, Ambassador Ty received a comment on this, exactly this issue when she testified last week, where one of the House members said the, the administration seems to think that consultation means putting some documents in a, in a skiff or compartmentalized, closed off facility and allowing nobody but members of Congress to read it. As, that constitutes consultation. In my experience, there's a fundamental divide here that is, I think, built into the Constitution. You know, for members of Congress, consultation means the administration comes up and says, we don't know what to do. Tell us what to do. And I can tell you, when I, in my 20 years on the Hill, I remember one time that actually happened. Once. The administration's view of consultation tends to be, we'll give you an hour heads up on the press release. And, you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, but Congress is always unhappy at the extent of consultation. No matter how much there is, it's never enough. It sounds, though, this time around that complaints are escalating, which usually means that there really isn't enough and there could be more talk going back and forth. Part of it is a little bit disingenuous, if you ask me, on the part of members of Congress who complain because some of these documents really are classified and end up in, in classified settings on the Hill, but that means that staff members who don't have security clearances can't see them. And for congressmen and senators who don't want to do the work themselves, but want to pass it off on their staff, and that's a problem. I was very lucky when I was up there to work for members that wanted to do the work themselves and wouldn't have complained about that. But some do. And frankly, I think some of this stuff is overclassified. It's commercial material. It's not national security material. But this is also related to the authority question. And Congressman Neal and Senator Wyden made this point as well. And every staffer who works up there on trade, the first thing they learn is Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, which is Congress has authority to regulate interstate and foreign commerce. And the members believe that these agreements should be submitted to Congress for approval and review. And the administration does not. And that's a pretty fundamental difference. It's not the first time this came up. Ambassador Lighthizer in the last administration did the same thing with the Japan agreement and uh, the China phase one agreement, uh, neither of which were submitted to Congress. And there were some complaints at the time about that. There are more complaints now because we uh, I think people sense a trend developing here. And the administration is being accused not only of not sending to Congress things that they should, but of designing their trade agreements so that they don't have to be sent to Congress by avoiding market access. I don't know that that gets into intent, and I can't comment on what administration intends. I can say that the last time things went properly, which was the, was the USMCA, and that had passed overwhelmingly. You know, it had nearly 200 votes from each side of the aisle in the House, and it passed overwhelmingly in the Senate. So you can do it. You know, you can submit these things to Congress. You can go through all the hoops and hurdles and have a successful outcome. But it appears the administration doesn't really want to do that. And this is going to be a theme. This is going to come up over and over again from the Hill. Why aren't these things being sent to us for review and approval? We have a small private working group going on at CSIS working on how to redesign trade promotion authority should it ever be restored. And the main question we've been wrestling with actually for, for a couple of years, as we took a hiatus for a while, was exactly this question, which agreements should go up to Congress and which don't have to? 
And there's a lot of little ones that probably don't have to, nobody thinks need to. But on the other hand, you know, should IPEF go to Congress? The administration says no. That's a pretty big agreement. Well, it ought to be part of the conversation between the executive and the legislative branch. Exactly. I mean, that's the place to hammer it out. And that's what this thing on, on minerals really is about. I mean, it's not really about the minerals. It's about congressional authority, I think. And speaking of differences of opinion between the role of Congress in trade and the executive's role, Catherine Tai held a hearing the House Ways and Means Committee last week, where in addition to going viral after her exchange with Representative Murphy, she also challenged members to follow up on their calls to negotiate new trade agreements with a modernized agenda and defended the Biden administration's commitment not to pursue traditional trade policies. So can you run me through the takeaways from Tai's exchange with House Ways and Means? Well, it's a common theme. Her comments have become, I think, clearer and more pointed over the the years she's been in, in, in the position, but it's not a new point. It, basically, it's the, the administration is charting a new, a new path on, on trade agreements, that old trade agreements, the traditional trade agreements that lower tariffs and promote market access have not served workers well. They benefited big companies and their CEOs, and they've not helped the workers. They've increased imports that cost jobs. They've hollowed out our manufacturing base and so on. You can debate whether that's right or not, we have uh, on, on the podcast from time to time. I suspect we will again. But every time she, she testifies, she's clear about this is what we intend to do. Well, actually, it's mostly this is what we intend not to do, which is to pursue traditional trade agreements. There's sort of two responses from the Hill. One is, can't we do both? Why can't we do the things you want to do? which have a lot to do with more commitments on labor conditions and worker rights and worker benefits and dispute settlement that would allow us to go after countries that don't honor their commitments in that area. More on sustainability, more on anti-corruption, which is one of the themes in, in the IPEF talks. We can do all that stuff, but why can't we also do market access? Her response so far has been, well, not right now, but maybe in the future. I think the other part has been, which is in growing, I think, particularly in the House, this is missed opportunities. And you can talk all you want about sustainability and the environment and labor and anti-corruption and that these are all good things. But in the economy, uh, in a country where 95% of the world's customers, if you're consumers, and I think 80% of the world's purchasing power lie outside the United States. If you want to grow, you need to export. And if you want to export, you need markets. And trade agreements at the end of the day are about markets and opening markets and creating more opportunities. I've ranted about this before. I think trade agreements create benefits. Uh, they don't distribute them. Catherine's focused on distributing the benefits. And you've got more and more members coming in saying, we need to focus on benefit creation. I think for some of them, and Adrian Smith, the chair of the subcommittee, trade subcommittee, is a good example. He represents geographically most of Nebraska. His constituents are farmers and people that are in related industries. And for them, exports are life and death. They're really important. And for him, this is good policy that we're missing out on. I think, frankly, for some others, some other Republicans, they see a weakness here. Uh, one more thing to blame on Biden, trade policy that's not helping the economy. And I think they're going to go after him. And that began last week. And you're going to see more of that. Yeah, that's certainly the politics. But, you know, as usual, the wrong when it comes to trade policy, the wrong thing goes viral. And I just wanted to, before we, we, we pass on it entirely, Representative Murphy of North Carolina made the comment that Ambassador Chai was probably too nice for her job. 
I would just point out that if I had that old game of having a dinner party with living or dead people and I was limited to cabinet officers, at that dinner party, I would invite Bill Brock, Clayton Yider, Bob Strauss, Susan Schwab, and Charlene Barshevsky, five former cabinet officers, all USTRs, and genuinely delightful people. And so I basically want to separate myself from the idea of somebody being too nice or not tough enough, because all those people are incredibly nice and fair-minded and jovial and good company, but delivered when they needed to for the United States. So... Well, it was kind of a patronizing comment to it. I'm, so, I'm sure. Yeah, and, you're, uh, sort of, yeah. you're a woman. You're nice. You know. You. Yeah. We, he, I think he's probably taken enough uh, comments from others at this point. I, all I can say is I've dealt with her. I mean, she's nice. She's tough. Oh yeah, absolutely. If anybody that watched the interview that I did with her um, a year and a half ago on China, she's really good at pushing back when she thinks you're wrong. That's definitely the case. The bigger issue for me, and what what should have gone viral and didn't, is. Look, the, the administration could really use some friends on the trade agenda, and they don't have any. And I think they don't have many because nobody can really tell what they're up to. Right? This is The problem is in these hearings, Ambassador Tai will say what they're not going to do. There's, they'll say what their trade agenda isn't. But there's a whole sort of globally engaged business community out there, agriculture, industrial and services, which would love to make more of foreign markets to serve the customers there. And they're looking for ways to help the administration and can't latch on to it. I mean, you know, for years, there was always a trade policy that firms that were looking for consumers around the world could look at and say, okay, this is for me. Whether it was the monolateral process that was really post-World War II was a peace project and sold as a way to increase the chance of not having another war, but in fact, brought brought every nation into the rules-based system. That was all very beneficial and beneficial for globally engaged companies of all sorts, as was the sort of, let's let's do production agreements with our neighbors, what we call free trade agreements. So starting with the US-Canada free trade agreement uh, negotiated by Clayton Yider, among others. And those were beneficial as well. They had, they had real commercial impact. As a result, whether, whether a Democrat or Republican administration there was support from the trade community to make these things happen, to, to bring them to fruition. And for me, the, the issue is, I mean, I'm not sure what they want. I mean, I know what they don't want, okay? But look, at least you could have differentiated yourself from the prior administration, which, was, which had this strategy of sort of alienation going on or, or something about McKinley Republicans and the tariff. You know, at least, at least step away from that. But they couldn't figure out how to unwind the Trump tariffs. So we still have them. And this is a thing that I think will continue to haunt them. There's definitely politics involved here, but there is an absence of bridge building to the most likely supporters of a positive opening market trade agenda that is just, it's baffling. And gaining supporters just lends more credibility to that kind of agenda, which is essential in making those trade agreements. Everybody needs friends in Washington, you know, and they're not, they're not making them here. And I just can't for the life of me figure out why. Yeah, but remember what Truman said, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. <laughs> Fair enough. Speaking of trying to make friends, or at least working on our friendship, finally, can we talk about the, the noise that the Biden administration plans to send Mexico a message in the upcoming weeks about President Lopez Obrador's decision to, to roll back reforms aimed at opening Mexico's power and oil markets to outside competitors? So USTR is expected to make a final offer to Mexico negotiators, an ultimatum of some sorts. What do we know about this? And can you run us through the background? I think the place to start is, while this is a specific Mexico-United States issue about 
investment in a single sector. It is in many ways the classic problem facing the resource industry almost uh, worldwide without, without uh, many exceptions. In the case of hydrocarbons, I believe it's something over 95%. It used to be 98, but I just don't know what the numbers are recently. The Energy Information Association could tell us, EIA. But something over 95% of all proven hydrocarbon reserves are owned or controlled by the governments involved. The state-owned oil industry is far and away dwarfs worldwide the private sector energy industry. It's a big industry, but still. And the classic problem for state-owned or state-controlled energy resources is how do you attract capital to extract those resources? And hydrocarbons extraction, no matter how close to the surface they are or what the formations are, require capital. Attracting and maintaining that investment is challenging. So you've had a couple of different approaches. Probably the best over the years has been Saudi Aramco. It's basically part of the companies has shares that are available for consumer purchases or for private sector purchase. But many of the shares, the controlling shares, are with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So it's Saudi Arabia's home oil company. They've done a great job of making investment attractive and safe and therefore have attracted massive investment to the sector. Mexico has a history of going the other way. In fact, the energy sector was nationalized by Mexico in something like 1948. For a while, a couple of the provinces had a public holiday on the day the oil industry was nationalized. So you can see how popular it was as an issue. And while it is still operated largely by a state-owned enterprise called Pemex, there was an agreement as part of the USMCA to open up parts of the energy sector particularly electric generating and natural gas, to foreign investment. Here's why that's important in Mexico. The northern states of Mexico, the ones closest to the United States border, a key development issue is providing reliable energy. On the U.S. side of that border is the Permian Basin, which is the largest proven oil and gas reserve in the continental United States. And there's so much natural gas in the Permian Basin that can't be distributed efficiently that it's still flared off. The old Think of the old movies about the oil and gas industry and the flares on all the top of the wells. That's what we're doing in the Permian Basin because we can't move the gas efficiently. One would think that a pipeline between Mexico and the United States, the Permian Basin connecting to those energy utilities in the north of Mexico, would be a really smart thing to do. And it is. But we can't get it done because of the lack of security for investors. So that's the core of the dispute is can the government of Mexico, in the person of Pemex and its allies in the government, be a reliable place to invest where investors, foreign investors can expect returns and protection of their capital? Unclear that it can. Uh, it's always been worth a try. We'll see where they go this time. That was brilliant. I've got very little to add except to note that people are beginning to wonder why this dispute is unfolding so slowly. We requested consultations on it last summer, I think, and have not gone to the panel dispute resolution process. And I think there's rumors, not any facts, but, you know, why not pass on gossip? Always fun. That's what we're here for. That's what, yeah, right. That's what we do. That we're slow rolling that case. And in return, the Mexicans are slow rolling their, their victory on the automobile rules, which we discussed on a previous podcast. That was a case that did go to dispute settlement. We lost, announced that we were going to comply. Uh, and as near as I can tell, I've not done anything since then. Except stay grumpy about it. Yeah. And the Mexicans have not continued to beat us over the head on it yet, but you know, they could because we lost and various, you know, deadlines are 
going by and nothing's happened. Likewise, we have not pressed the uh, the energy case with the Mexicans uh, as vigorously as some uh, private sector parties in the United States would like us to do. I think the other, po- that's all rumor, but it's one thing you could think about. I think the other element here that is probably a note of realism is the, the president of Mexico has v- had has long had very strong views about making sure that Pemex is the national entity and that the government of Mexico controls the energy sector in Mexico. And his predecessor tried to introduce market elements into the sector with, at the time, some success. And AMLO has done his best since then to roll those back because, as a matter of principle, he doesn't believe that's the way the economy should operate. He thinks the energy sector should be under state control. And he's been consistent about that, has felt very strongly about that for a very long time. I suspect there's people in the administration who say that this is an issue where he's probably willing to fall on his sword. And to the extent that we press it, we are compromising other issues that we have on the table with Mexico, including non-trade issues. And we need to tread very carefully. So that's not good news for people that would like to have more U.S. investment in, in the Mexican energy sector. And frankly, it's not good news for the Mexicans. Because it's not doing any good. It's not doing anything to revitalize their energy sector. But as long as AMLO is president, I think it's going to stay that way. And I suspect that uh, this is an issue that's not likely to be resolved until after the next Mexican election, which will be in 2024. Yeah, the key point to reinforce there is that when you have a close neighbor with a long border, like we do with both Canada and Mexico, it's complicated. Even if it's even if it's a generally positive relationship, it's always complicated. There are always a lot of issues. It's just a fa- fact of uh, international diplomacy. So in this particular case, we seem to be at a standstill, essentially, for the time being. Won't stop us from talking about it again in the future, but yes. <laughs> Great. More material for us. Well, Trey, guys, thank you so much for another insightful episode. A lot of interesting topics to cover for my first time here. So I'm glad I got to join and uh, looking forward to touching base next week. Thank you. Thank you. See you then. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.